Hi, I'm Charlotte Leslie, Director of CMEC. This series of podcasts on Turkey is proudly sponsored by Karkin and Yuxal, a Turkish law firm based in London. You can find more information about Karkin and Yuxal, their London office and their practice areas on their website, www.karkinyuxal.co.uk. You can also find a link to their website directly in the description of this podcast. I'm Cheyenne Talabani and for this CMEC podcast I'm talking to Aykan Erdemir. Turkey is living through tumultuous times. 2021 started with student protests at Istanbul's Boğaziçi University over the appointment of a leading supporter of Turkish President Erdogan's Justice and Development Party as university rector. Soon after, Ankara caused shockwaves by withdrawing from the Council of Europe's Convention on Preventing and Combating Violence Against Women and Domestic Violence, also known as the Istanbul Convention. President Erdogan then promptly fired the third Turkish central bank governor in less than 20 months. Meanwhile, arrests of high-profile members of Turkey's third largest parliamentary party, the pro-Kurdish People's Democratic Party, otherwise known as the HDP, continued. Judicial supporters of President Erdogan even started court action in an attempt to shut down the HDP entirely a move seen by critics as an attack on democracy. And of course, on top of all of that, the chaos and stresses of COVID have done little to help the country's troubled economy. I am lucky to have with me today Aykan Erdemir. Aykan is Senior Director of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies Turkey Programme in Washington, D.C. He was a member of the Turkish Parliament up until 2015, and was a prominent member of the EU-Turkey Joint Parliamentary Committee. ICANN is a leading advocate in promoting pluralism and religious as well as ethnic freedom and rights in Turkey, and he is a founding member of the International Panel of Parliamentarians for Freedom of Religion or Belief. He has edited seven books and is widely published in leading journals around the world. I think it's fair to describe Aykan as a critic of the Erdogan government. Aykan, thank you so much for being here today and for agreeing to brief us on what has been an incredibly eventful few months in Turkey. Thanks for having me and it's really a great pleasure to join you today. First, Aykan, for those of our listeners who are not as well versed in current Turkish affairs, Could you give us a more detailed overview of the events in recent weeks and months in Turkey that have furthered not only an economic crisis, but also a lot of political uncertainty and arguably somewhat of a cultural war? So in Turkey, I think we have been witnessing a dual crisis in the making, a political one and an economic one. The political one is better known because, you know, Turkey used to be a role model for other majority Muslim states. You know, it was able to combine a relatively successful parliamentary democracy together with being a pro-Western functional member of NATO. 
And on the economic side, Turkey's current leader, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, actually sold his economic success, the boom in the early 2000s, as his basically success story. But within the last decade, we have seen a dramatic reversal. That is, as Turkey descended deeper and deeper into authoritarianism and one-man rule, we have also seen Turkey's financial nosedive. So the last month, I would argue, epitomizes what is wrong with Turkey's economic and financial management. And this all boils down to the, the peculiar, unorthodox economic convictions of Turkish President Erdogan. He believes and goes against mainstream economic thinking that high interest rates cause inflation. And although Turkey now has double-digit inflation and the orthodox economic response, central bank response to that should be to raise interest rates, Erdogan's political pressure on the Turkish central bank has basically prevented that from happening. So the end result is rampant inflation, an ongoing devaluation of the Turkish lira, and an exodus of Western capital from Turkish equities and bonds. So we have seen Erdogan reshuffle, you know, four central bank governors within the last five years. We have seen how increasingly personalized economic and financial policymaking has become. You know, Erdogan's son-in-law was until recently Turkey's Minister of Finance and Treasury. So, so all of these result in the existing financial meltdown. And as it is also the case elsewhere around the world, Erdogan's response has been to turn towards symbolic politics, that is, turn to uh, triggering a culture war through the universities, through the gender issue, through ethnic and minority rights issues, to basically close the ranks among his supporters and to turn the electorate's attention away from the economic crisis. There is, as you mentioned, Icon, a clear domestic effort to turn the attention away from Turkey's current economic outlook and sway the electorate population in this form. Western and regional observers have seen this shift in Turkey's domestic and foreign policy play out over quite a long period of time now under Erdogan's AKP party rule. But what is the context of today's very rapid changes in Turkey. Over the last few months, more has happened and changed in Turkey than perhaps ever. So when we take a look at Erdogan's now nearly 18 years of rule, we have seen that this is a particular moment of crisis. When we take a look at Turkey's opinion polls, Erdogan's Islamist-rooted Justice and Development Party has never had such a, a low performance in the polls. So his voter support has been eroding. To make matters worse, his coalition partners, Turkey's ultra-nationalist MHP, the Nationalist Action Party, votes are also eroding. So this means that in the upcoming 2023 parliamentary cum presidential elections, Erdogan is set to lose not only the presidency, but also his parliamentary majority. 
And we have already seen this in action back in 2019, when to Erdogan's shock, his candidates lost almost every single one of Turkey's metropolitan centers in the municipal elections. So as of 2019, Turkey's diverse opposition bloc, you know, this big tent umbrella opposition bloc that brings together center right and center left and Turkish and Kurdish nationalist parties, won half of Turkey's population and two thirds of Turkey's GDP. So that was quite a significant blow to Erdogan. So since 2019, he is looking for ways to reverse this trend. And what better strategy if, if you depend on an Islamist and ultra-nationalist grassroots, what better way to try to turn this around than to turn to symbolic politics? And that is the only domain where Erdogan feels he can deliver. You know, Turkey's coffers at this point are empty. Turkey's foreign currency reserves, excluding certain swap deals are in the negative. So Turkey actually no longer has any reserves to tap into. And given the ongoing capital flight from Turkey, both Western capital as well as domestic capital, Erdogan knows there is no opportunity to turn the economic meltdown around. But he knows he can over-deliver when it comes to religious and ethnic politics. And just let me give you a few highlights of what he has done. He has converted Hagia Sophia, you know, this Istanbul's monument, sacred to both Christians and Muslims alike, from a museum into a mosque. He has withdrawn Turkey from the Council of Europe's Istanbul Convention, which is a convention against violence against women. And this was to cater to his, you know, patriarchal, again, grassroots. He has appointed a crony to Istanbul's top public university, which was a very symbolic act of domination over the intellectual and academic world. And most recently, he has taken over Istanbul's Gezi Park. This is that highly symbolic public park that led to the 2013 demonstrations all around Turkey, which almost brought Erdogan down. So when you put all of these together, you know, all of this is happening within the last year, and many of these steps were taken only within the last month. It's clear that Erdogan has an all-out assault in the political-cultural domain. And he hopes that scapegoating ethnic and religious minorities, scapegoating women, and emphasizing cultural and religious issues at the expense of economic and financial issues can do the magic. Just a reminder, I'm Cheyenne Talabani, and for this CMEC podcast, I'm talking to Aykan Erdemir. Aykan is Senior Director of the Foundation for Defense of Democracy's Turkey program in Washington, D.C. The umbrella opposition bloc that came together in 2019 to counter Erdogan's AKP party, uh, most prominently in the municipal elections, where do they stand now and what is their current role or stance in all of this? Turkey's opposition playing field is relatively divided. But in 2019, I think Turkey's opposition parties have demonstrated that they can join forces against all odds to defeat Erdogan and his ultra-nationalist parties. But that big tent umbrella that brought Turkish opposition the 2019 victory 
is a very shaky one. And let me explain why. Now, the linchpin of this alliance is uh, Turkey's Republican People's Party, the CHP, which is a center-left party, which also appeals to Turkey's center. And it's the traditional secular Republican Party. Then a splinter from Turkey's ultra-nationalist MHP, the Good Party, which is refashioning itself as a moderately nationalist center-right party, is also a key component of this alliance. And in the polls, they seem to be getting a lot of votes, attracting a lot of votes, not only from the ultra-nationalists, but also from the Islamists. So Good Party is now also becoming a a new catch-all center-right party. But what makes this big tent umbrella successful and what is really the the most crucial component is the pro-Kurdish HDP, the People's Democratic Party. And so for the CHP, the big task is how to sustain a pragmatic coalition that has both a Turkish nationalist party and a pro-Kurdish party. And in 2019, somehow that worked out and Erdogan lost the elections. And now the task ahead is whether this coalition, this kind of inherently instable coalition can survive until 2023 to defeat Erdogan for a second time in row. And of course, Politics is never one-sided, right? Meaning as the opposition is devising its strategies, Erdogan is trying to come up with some counter strategies. So, so far, his strategy seems to be two-pronged. On the one hand, he's cracking down on the HDP, on the pro-Kurdish party, by removing its elected mayors from office, by removing its elected lawmakers from parliament, stripping them of their parliamentary immunity, sending them to prison, and also by initiating a lawsuit against the HDP to shutter the party. So this first part of his strategy is to destroy Turkey's pro-Kurdish party so that there is no more this opportunity for a big tent opposition coalition. The second strategy is to encourage behind the scenes some splinter Trojan horse opposition parties to be established. Because Erdogan knows that the 2019 elections, the mayoral elections were very close. So again, in 2023, it might be down to a percentage point or less that determines Turkey's future. So what is a better strategy than to try to push forward some splinter Trojan horse parties to basically rid the opposition of that crucial 1%, which might give them the electoral victory after all. So, of course, these are not democratic strategies, counter strategies. These are authoritarian tricks. Sometimes such authoritarian tricks don't serve the incumbents well and lead to an opposition landslide. I can. Turkey's Kurdish issue is, I suppose, the big elephant in the room. You touched upon the crackdown on the HDP and their pro-Kurdish stance. But just to understand this better, I have a couple of questions. So I apologise in advance if there's too many. Please feel free to sort of break them down. Firstly, what has been the impact of the end of the Kurdish peace process for Turkey and the Middle East? Secondly, What would be the dividends of Ankara's return to the Kurdish peace process for Turkey, the Middle East and beyond? And lastly, 
Is there a role for the West to play in this or not? Yes, I would personally argue that Turkey's Kurdish question is the single most important factor undermining Turkey's democracy, undermining Turkey's economy, and undermining Turkey's relations with its NATO allies. So there is no other development throughout the Republican history that has hurt Turkey most. And when I say hurt Turkey most, I'm referring to ill-advised policies of exclusion, crackdown, and marginalization. You know, the, the mistaken assumption that Turkey could overcome Kurdish political and cultural demands by a hardline policy and by assimilation alone. So it was really very important when Turkey launched the Kurdish peace process. And to give credit to Erdogan, he was the one behind this project. And back then, you know, this is 2011, 2015, when I was serving in Turkish in the Turkish parliament, although I vocally opposed almost the entire set of policies Erdogan proposed, I was, again, vocally in favor of the Kurdish peace process. So many of my colleagues in the opposition gave him support to go forward with it. But we had one caveat. We warned that Erdogan's approach to this Kurdish peace process was a very top-down, opaque, and behind-the-scenes dealings that did not aimed at creating consensus, bringing in all the stakeholders. So in the plenary, I warned the Erdogan government that this approach will end in failure and will bring us even behind where we started. Sadly, I was right. I wish I were wrong because by 2015, not only the Kurdish peace process came to a halt, but the fighting resumed. And not only this led to enormous cost of human life and destruction of Turkey's numerous Kurdish majority cities and forced migration and an undermining of Turkey's democracy, but also this put Turkey on a path away from Turkey's Western allies. One could argue that Turkey's key reversal in its Syria policy, its pivot toward Russia, Iran, and the Assad regime is driven also by the Kurdish question. When Syrian Kurds gain certain rights and capacity for self-rule, this became also a major concern for Turkey's ruling Islamist ultra-nationalist bloc. So to prevent any Syrian Kurdish self-rule capacity, Turkey thought it's better to join forces with Moscow, Tehran, and Damascus. Now, of course, this is a mistaken assumption that any form of Kurdish self-rule capacity comes at the expense of Turkish national interest. But this fallacy really is at the core of Turkey's ill-advised Kurdish policy. And I think there is no better example to give than Iraq's Kurdistan regional government to prove such fears wrong. Because when Iraqi Kurds were developing a capacity for self-rule, for governance, there was again enormous anxiety and fear in Turkey. Many saw this as an existential threat to Turkey. But these fears were proven wrong. And within a decade, 
Iraqi Kurds and particularly the, the Kurdistan regional government became an enormous partner politically, economically, trade-wise for Turkey. And numerous Turks and Kurds across Turkey's political spectrum established personal relations, trade relations, economic relations with their Iraqi Kurdish counterparts. And since then, this relationship has become a win-win relationship. So I would argue that both within Turkey and with Syrian Kurds, Turkey has the same ability, the the potential to build win-win relationships. That is, including Kurds in governance. That is, empowering Kurdish governance capacity never comes at the expense of Turkish interest. On the contrary, it gives Turkey potential to strengthen its governance at home and its relations with neighboring peoples and entities. So the Kurdish peace process, I think, remains, still remains the most important task that Turkey needs to fulfill. And of course, given how domestic dynamics have been tricky, there is a role for the international community to play, and especially for Turkey's Western allies to play. It's important for Brussels and Washington and London to realize that the Kurdish issue pushes Turkey away from transatlantic values and toward authoritarian regimes such as Russia, China, you know, Iran, as well as the Assad regime, meaning the Kurdish question brings out the worst in Ankara's decision makers. It pushes them toward taking the wrong steps in foreign security and economic policy. And hence, this is not just a soft issue about human rights, but this is a hard security issue for the West about Turkey's future orientation and the security architecture of the Middle East and beyond. Hi, this is Charlotte Leslie again, CMEC Director. Our sponsors are Karkin and Yuxel, a full-service law firm providing a diverse range of legal services operating from the Gherkin in the heart of the City of London. With a global network and more than 25 years of Turkish legal expertise, Karkin and Yuxel offers expert counsel on Turkish law and Turkey-related matters across a whole range of sectors and specialisms and also advises on international law, especially international arbitration and international transactions covering multiple jurisdictions. I'm Shayan Talabani and I'm talking to Aykan Erdemir. Aykan is Senior Director of the Foundation for Defense of Democracy's Turkey Programme in Washington, D.C. I'd highly recommend following Aykan on Twitter for updates on current Turkish affairs, and you can find his Twitter handle linked below in the description of this podcast. What are the consequences of Turkey's drift away from NATO and transatlantic values, both for the Middle East, but also for the transatlantic alliance? So the drift uh, I've been speaking about uh, is a set of transatlantic values around freedom of expression, freedom of belief, free markets, political freedoms, what really defines the West today. And of course, the European Union has also codified them as the Copenhagen criteria. And so these were the prerequisite criteria that Turkey had to fulfill before Turkey's own very own EU accession process 
was allowed to go forward. But since then, Turkey has really eroded much of that set of values, whether you call them transatlantic values or whether you call them Copenhagen criteria. And the end result is the current state of authoritarianism in Turkey. So we see a restricting of the media space. For example, today, 95% of Turkey's media is basically dominated by the government. We have Turkey alongside China being listed as the leading jailers of journalists around the world. We have significant numbers of Turkish lawmakers and mayors either removed from office or in jail, and a bulk of them being Kurdish elected representatives. We also see a scapegoating of minorities, anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, anti-Christian conspiracy theories on the rise. We have seen a systematic deportation of Protestant faith leaders from Turkey. We have seen hate crimes committed against Turkey's Jews and Christians and Alevis and Kurds. So all of these indicate that there is an ongoing erosion of fundamental rights and freedoms in Turkey. And the consequences will not be just about Turkey. So I think that's the most important part of your question. That is, Turkey matters greatly for the Middle East. Turkey matters greatly for the Balkans, for the Caucasus, for the Eastern Mediterranean. Hence, Turkey is an integral part of the security architecture of the European Union as well as NATO. So Turkey's ongoing drift from these values and Turkey's descent into one-man rule and its excesses and arbitrary rule will inevitably have consequences for other state and non-state actors in the region. Because Turkey can play both a very positive role in democratization, in consolidation of democracy and in ensuring security in the region, or it can be a very negative force for that. Just to give you an example from a bygone era, back in 1990s, early 2000s, Turkey was seen as a net security contributor to NATO, you know, from Afghanistan to Somalia to Kosovo, You know, Turkey was at the forefront of various NATO and United Nations missions. Turkey was a role model for pro-democracy and pro-secularism activists, especially in the Middle East, especially in Muslim-majority countries. And most importantly, Turkey was a symbol that you can combine a Muslim-majority polity together with separation of mosque and state, together with free markets, and together with political freedoms. Now, that symbol is sadly lost today. That is, when the Muslim youth around the world take a look at Turkey, they see it as a quote-unquote role model for political Islam, for conspiracy theories, for a belligerent and irredentist foreign policy, So a set of policies that people associate with a certain brand of political Islam, namely the Muslim Brotherhood's extremist ideology. Now, this inevitably hurts not only Turkey, not only Turkey's neighbors, but also Turkey's Western allies. Hence, this is the need to take action. And I also want to be hopeful about the future because, you know, this paints a very grim picture. 
But at the same time, keep in mind that Turkey cannot just be reduced to one political party or one political leader. When you take a look at both election results and opinion polls, Turkey is a very diverse society with a robust civil society that against all odds remains resilient, advocates for political freedoms, confessional freedoms, gender freedoms, market freedoms. So this is not a mission impossible that I'm asking for Turkey's Western allies to undertake, but this is more an act of solidarity in reaching out to Turkey's pro-Western, pro-democracy forces. Not only an act of solidarity, but also an act of clear messaging, indicating where the West stands vis-a-vis Turkey. You know, this is a call for turning away from appeasement policies that have characterized the European Union's approach. Earlier, you touched upon Turkey's increased role in the Middle East. We have all watched Turkey pivot to the East and reorient itself, pun not intended, toward this part of the world and involve itself in places like Syria, Libya, and of course, the Eastern Mediterranean. But we've also seen, as of recent, some signs, particularly in the context of the Biden administration, that Turkey may be rethinking its positionality and perhaps contemplating and deciding where it finally belongs and what kind of country it wants to be. There is a lot of risk for the current government, but would you say this is a strategically critical moment for Turkey, not only domestically, as we discussed before, but also on the global and regional fronts. This foreign policy drift in Turkey comes hand in hand with a radical restructuring of Turkey's domestic politics, society, as well as, you know, sociopolitical processes that Turkey as a country is also becoming a new polity. That is, its institutions are being hollowed out, checks and balances are being undermined, separation of powers have basically dissolved, and governance is no more an important concept in Turkey. Meaning, instead of governance, Turkey now has rule by decree. That is, Erdogan single-handedly issues presidential decrees He no longer needs the parliament. He no longer needs even his ministers. And on Friday nights, these shocking decrees are issued. People learn them from the official gazette early Saturday morning. And then the markets react. So the only reaction Turkey now has is people voting with their either feet, that is out-migration, or people voting with their economic resources, that is capital flight from Turkey. And hence, this all puts also an economic responsibility on the West, because guess who is the most exposed to Turkey's financial markets? It's the West. I wanted to ask a final question that I believe is probably on the minds of most of our listeners, and that is the future of the UK-Turkey relationship. The UK is now no longer a member of the European Union, and rightly so, looks to Turkey as a key and very large economic partner. But how else do you see the wider and historical relationship between the United Kingdom and Turkey developing in the next few years? So the United Kingdom has a unique role to play when it comes to Turkey. 
And that also depends on Turkey's perception of the UK. So when Brexit happened, Turkey and the United Kingdom, I think, looked at one another as potential trading partners, as being these two sizable kind of economies on the margins of the European Union. But bilateral relations go beyond the economic domain. I think politically, Turkey feels an affinity to the United Kingdom. And this was also strengthened by the British speed and proactivity in the immediate aftermath of Turkey's abortive coup. So a message of solidarity from the UK, you know, a quick visit from the UK were perceived very positively, not just by the Turkish government, but across the Turkish political spectrum. So this gives British lawmakers, as well as bureaucrats, an advantage in reaching out to Turkey, meaning their suggestions, recommendations could be perceived by their counterparts in Turkey as being more friendly as being more constructive vis-a-vis some others around the world, especially when compared to the United States, because the, you know there's a very strong anti-American sentiment in Turkey. So I always recommend Washington to work with its transatlantic allies in reaching out to Turkey. I always recommend in my policy briefs and reports the need for a concerted transatlantic strategy. So one could argue that the UK plays a central pivotal role in devising and implementing that transatlantic strategy. And I think ultimately, politically and economically, Britain has so much to gain from Turkey's return to democracy, Turkey's return to the Western alliance, Turkey's return to the peace process. There is a long history to build on, and there is also warm sentiments to capitalize on. So again, this is my call for our British colleagues across the political spectrum, as well as beyond politics, given the strong people-to-people ties, that they can really make a positive impact in Turkey and be a force for positive reform. Thanks, Aykan. You've given us a really detailed and all-encompassing account of what is really going on in Turkey um, as of current. And we're incredibly grateful to you and we'll probably and most definitely hear from you very soon. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It was my pleasure. Hi, this is Charlotte Leslie. And this podcast on Turkey was sponsored by Karkin and Yuxel, a full service law firm providing a diverse range of legal services operating from the Gherkin in the city of London. We are proud to be associated with them.